from Michigan Radio, this is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Today, how the effort to restrict abortion rights in other states could have ripple effects in Michigan. The law that's on the books in Michigan right now is actually more stringent when it comes to abortion than the law that was passed in Texas. That law might become a lot more important pending a Supreme Court decision. Also, latest census results show more black families moving to Detroit suburbs like East Point. A group of residents is working to make sure everyone feels welcome here. There were some other people, white and black, that were concerned about what was being said about the city. We wanted to change that perspective to the public. Then John U. Bacon's new book explores lessons learned coaching a notoriously bad high school hockey team. If you're based on principles other than winning, No matter what happens, if we followed our principles, we're okay. And that is a great, secure feeling. All that and more coming up on today's edition of Stateside. Welcome to Stateside. I'm April Baer. Today, hard knocks and life lessons with the worst high school hockey team in the U.S. They had not won a game in about a year and a half. Zero, 22, and three. And for you non-sports fans out there, the zero is where the wins go. So... On some website, they ranked dead last in the nation. That story's coming up later, but first, the ripple effect from Texas's landmark new anti-abortion law has reached Michigan. Since the Texas state legislature passed a measure that breaks new ground in its pursuit of abortion restrictions, many states, including ours, have been re-examining legal precedent that's been part of American life for decades. Today, Governor Gretchen Whitmer called on the state legislature to repeal a 1931 abortion ban on the books in Michigan, although it is highly unlikely that the Republican-led bodies will do so. Dave Boucher has been writing about legal repercussions in Michigan for the Texas law. He's a politics and policy reporter with the Detroit Free Press, and he joins us now. Dave, welcome back to Stateside. Thanks for having me. Dave, Texas just passed this landmark new law that gives every person in the United States standing in Texas courts to sue when an abortion has occurred. This is a new method for making abortion illegal. It's very groundbreaking. Some states are already eyeing legislation that they might pass that would do the same thing that Texas just did. But I understand that there actually hasn't been any rumbling of that sort in Michigan. Why is that? Yeah. So the law that's on the books in Michigan right now is actually uh, more stringent when it comes to abortion than the law that was passed in Texas. At least that's according to the people who are against abortion rights. The law that's in Michigan is from 1931, and it essentially bans any abortion uh, unless it would be performed to save the life of the mother. And so the uh, Right to Life Michigan organization that is against all abortion spoke with me last week after the ruling and said essentially a law like we saw in Texas would be something of a step back if it were enacted in Michigan, given that law that's on the books already. Interesting. What's the origin of this law in Michigan? It actually dates back to the 1800s, and, and it's similar to, to laws that were in lots of states all over the, all over the country that essentially banned any form of abortion. The, the law in Michigan seems to um, kind of target providers. So the, the language in the law talks about administering drugs with intent to procure miscarriage and specifically talks about any person who shall administer to a pregnant woman any medicine, drug, or employ any instrument. And so it seems like it's that's targeted toward either a medical provider or someone else as opposed to the woman getting the abortion. But uh, it's, uh, you know, laws like this were on the books in several states and kind of prompted the, the necessity for the, the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court ruling. Obviously, this old law is not enforced. I'm assuming that's because of the 73 Roe versus Wade decision, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why, you know, there are several cases 
before the Supreme Court now that could lead to a complete reversal on Roe v. Wade. Obviously, there are lots of people who view the the recent Texas ruling as a reversal of Roe v. Wade, but it currently, you know, only applies to Texas. There are other cases that could be decided as soon as June that would overturn Roe v. Wade, and that you know would make this 1931 law in Michigan very relevant very soon. Dave, why is the 1931 Michigan law still on the books? That's a great question. Uh, I think <laughs> if, if people were to dig into the code, they'd find all sorts of laws that are either um, outdated or overruled by court precedent. Now, this specific law is one that you know people who are against abortion rights want to keep on the books and are advocating to keep on the books because they believe that as soon as they hope, as soon as Roe v. Wade is overturned, that this will be the law on the land in Michigan. So it's one of those laws that, you know, anti-abortion right activists have really campaigned to keep in Michigan statute. Right. So what have pro-choice groups been focusing their efforts on in Lansing in terms of legislation to try to get abortion protections into state law? Yeah. So there are several states around the country that have enacted Roe, the language of Roe as a law. And so that would have the effect of even if Roe were overturned, you know, abortion would still be legal. Michigan has not been one of those states. In fact, uh, most of the, the legislation that's been presented and approved in Lansing have enacted new restrictions on, on abortion. You know, the, the Republican Party has controlled the legislature in Lansing essentially um, unabated for decades. But Governor Gretchen Whitmer, a Democrat, has the, the ability to, to veto legislation. And so most of the measures that have been enacted that have had a broad sweeping effect have come via initiative petition. That's a relatively obscure process that has kind of come back into the limelight um, recently as it pertains to COVID procedures. There was a 1945 emergency powers rule that was rescinded via this, this petition process where hundreds of thousands of signatures are, are collected, they're presented to the legislature, and the legislature can approve it in a manner that the governor can't veto. Uh, so essentially, all of the legislation and discussion around changing ab abortion policy in Michigan has centered on restriction, not ensuring access. Right. Folks will remember, we've also been talking about this lately with respect to uh, voting measures and some groups that would like to make changes in in the, the strictness of Michigan's voting laws. Dave, as you mentioned, there are many signs suggesting that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to reconsider Roe versus Wade at some point in the not-too-distant future. And the composition of the court has certainly changed in recent years. Let's say that Roe versus Wade is taken up by the court and struck down. Michigan's Attorney General Dana Nessel has been a pretty steadfast supporter of reproductive rights and abortion rights. Would that mean a showdown in Michigan in terms of how abortion laws are exercised? Absolutely. As you noted, uh, Attorney General Nessel has said publicly and in fact campaigned on this issue in, in 2018 when she first ran for office and, and promised that she wouldn't prosecute women seeking abortions. And we also heard recently from the Washtenaw County prosecutor who said essentially the same thing. It's kind of in theory, if Rose overturned, it, it could establish something of a patchwork system where, you know, the, the 1931 law would be on the books and many people would consider abortion illegal anywhere in the state. But it would come down to prosecutorial discretion where, you know, maybe an abortion in Ann Arbor wouldn't be prosecuted, but an abortion somewhere else in the state would be. There would be lots of legal challenges from both sides, uh, lots of questions coming out of that and attempts from 
both you know anti-abortion rights activists and and pro-abortion rights activists to try and change the law or codify something in their favor. Dave, you turned up some facts on abortion and how and when it's provided in Michigan. It feels like there is something of a patchwork nature to the system that we have now. Can you tell us a little bit about how common it is and how many facilities there are in Michigan that will that will provide abortions? Sure. So uh, some of this information, uh, most of this is coming from the state and the state, you know, tries to keep track of this information. Uh, According to the 2020 report from the state health department, there were almost 30,000 abortions performed in Michigan last year. So that's that's more in any single year than the state has recorded since 1996, about an 8.5% increase from 2019. So it's, it's a relatively larger amount of abortions last year. I, I asked an expert who works with Planned Parenthood why she thinks that might be. And she said, you know, it's it, it's tough to dig into all the data and have one clear, obvious solution. But she said maybe the pandemic might have led to that or there's any number of other factors. The number of facilities providing abortions in Michigan is also something of a question mark right now. As of 2017, there were about 30 facilities, according to the Guttmacher Institute, it's a, an organization that advocates for sexual and reproductive health rights. That number could be different now. Again, that data is from 2017. Uh, but again, that's that 30,000 abortions is, is uh, a slight increase last year and a, a larger yearly total than the state had seen for several decades. If we say that there are 30 facilities, Michigan has well more than 30 counties, it seems likely that people may have to travel now if they do not live in one of the densely populated metro areas of southeast Michigan. People are absolutely traveling. Uh, And that's not just a Michigan thing. We've seen that all over the country um, where individuals who are living in states that have greater restrictions or have successfully campaigned to, to close down all but two or three clinics, people are traveling, if they have the capacity to, are traveling a long way. For an abortion. So you're exactly right. 83 counties in Michigan, 30 facilities. Somebody who's getting an abortion is traveling a long way uh, to make that decision. Dave, it seems like this is going to be a major wedge issue in politics. And next year is one in which key elections are going to happen. How are the parties gearing up to talk about reproductive rights? I would say that in general, that is an absolute, that's the thing that drives conservative voters, right? That, that, that we've seen at, at every level that that is a, an issue that has driven conservative voters. There's discussion on, on the left of, you know, pushing back on this idea, at least among some of the party, that it's not an issue because Roe is the law of the land, right? And so that people have accused the conservatives of, you know, using this as a talking point, when in reality, it's not an actual issue that's ripe for debate. But now that Roe appears at least potentially poised to be overturned, it's definitely something that could drive voter turnout on either side. It's, it's obviously, as you noted, it's a divisive issue. It's something that people are, are very, very passionate about and, and could, in theory, help either political party. Dave Boucher reports on politics and political issues for the Detroit Free Press. Dave, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Have you been wondering when in the world will this pandemic end? Or are we just at the beginning of some kind of new normal? That's the topic of Michigan Radio's Next Issues and Ale series. Join me next Tuesday, September 14th at York on Packard Street in Ann Arbor. We will be there in person 
for a limited number of audience members. Everybody else can join in online. We'll discuss the latest science and the impact that the ongoing pandemic is having on jobs and education and our personal stress levels. A select number of in-person tickets are available, and you can also watch the event online. Just visit michiganradio.org for more details. We've got to take a quick break here. In just a moment, how schools up north are trying to meet the mental health needs of students stressed out by the pandemic. We're seeing families who have lost maybe a loved one to COVID or experiencing financial hardship, unemployment, strained relationships in their household. So all of this has an impact on the mental health of the children. There's sort of a trickle-down effect. That's in just a minute. Stay with us. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. As northern Michigan schools start up this week, local health departments say that the pandemic has created a real need for youth mental health services. There aren't enough therapists. That's making it difficult for all students to get the care they need. But now, a program that embeds therapists in schools is expanding up north. Interlochen Public Radio's Taylor Wisner has the story for us. When his school closed last fall because of COVID outbreaks, 16-year-old Liam Dreyer settled into his virtual learning environment at home. He adjusted, but it wasn't easy for all his classmates. They have their mother making their lunch behind them and their dog barking, and when they try to answer a question, it's just chaos behind them. Away from their peers and isolated at home, Dreyer says he noticed some were struggling mentally. When you see the opportunity ahead of you and you think, oh, by this date, I'm going to be able to hang out with my friend. And just like that, it gets pushed back two more months. That that is crushing. For adolescents, it's really difficult because the way that they feel in the moment is the way that they think they're going to feel forever. That's licensed therapist Amanda Rothfuss. She says COVID has been really tough on kids, but mental health has been a problem for many long before the pandemic. In Michigan, the number of young people with depression has increased by more than 80 percent in the last decade. That's according to 2019 figures from the Citizens Research Council of Michigan. Experts aren't exactly sure why, but they point to social media, gender identity and sexual orientation issues, and an overall changing society. But there is some support for students. A model that offers mental health services on school grounds is multiplying in northern Michigan. The kids love having this service so easily accessible to them. At Harbor Springs Middle School, Rothfuss says students can now step away from music class or tutorial period to get help when they need it. She offers them cognitive behavioral therapy, which targets students' negative thought patterns. She also hosts group therapy sessions where students share their common struggles. The person sitting next to me in math class is also feeling and going through the same thing that I am. It creates a sense of community that I think students find very beneficial. Rothfuss is embedded in Harbor Springs Middle because of a collaboration with the Health Department of Northwest Michigan. The department has grown rapidly over the last two years. It's gone from having programs at a handful of schools to now 19. And just recently, they were awarded a $5 million grant to keep expanding. If the health department doesn't provide mental health services at school, it's likely students won't get them at all. That's because there's just a few behavioral health providers in northern Michigan, and most counties have no child or adolescent psychiatrists. On top of that, 
Rothfuss thinks the need for youth mental health services will be even greater post-pandemic. We're seeing families who have lost maybe a loved one to COVID or experiencing financial hardship, unemployment, strained relationships in their household. So all of this has an impact on the mental health of the children. There's sort of a trickle-down effect. The mental health program at Harbor Springs Middle opened in January 2020. Principal Heather Kaiser says it's been a big benefit to students. For her part, she tries to make the two school therapists a normal part of the school environment. They're visible. The students see them, interact with them um, during recess time or in the hallways. So it's not a scary person behind a closed door. More schools are beginning to offer programs like these. All counties in northwest lower Michigan, except Benzie and Leelanau, now have a collaboration with their local health department in at least one school district. And more are expected to come. I'm Taylor Wisner. This week is kind of a moment for parents watching their kids head back to school. The hopes are so, so high that this is going to be a good year. Even if you don't have young people in your life, you might find yourself watching the weather start to turn and thinking about how to hit reset. The things that we all need right now, they go a little beyond a pep talk, no? Right on time as usual, we welcome Michigan radio commentator John U. Bacon back in. He had a very interesting and very rejuvenating experience some years back coaching a notoriously bad high school hockey team. And it planted the seed for his new book. The book is called Let Them Lead. John Bacon, hi. Hello, April. Always a pleasure. So this team that you coach, the Huron River Rats, need no introduction for some people listening. But others may not know the story. I mean, Huron is your high school, isn't it? Yes, the Annabelle Huron River Rats. We're not making that up. Uh, and yes, in 2000, um, they had not won a game in about a year and a half. Uh, zero, 22, and 3. And for you non-sports fans out there, the zero is where the wins go. So on some website, they ranked dead last in the nation. Zero, twenty-two, and three. Why, in God's name, would you take on a team in such bad shape? Because I was the guy in high school who was zero for eighty-six games in scoring goals. So that's why. <laughs> the coach with no goals, coaching the team with no wins. Uh, as corny as it sounds, this is long before I got married. I'm a late starter, no kids yet. Um, I'd been at the Detroit News, good job, and I was freelancing for ESPN and so on. But I lacked something, and what I lacked was you know, a sense of family. Now, my own family I'm close to, but, um, but I wanted something more. So as corny as it sounds, what I wanted was an experience that these guys would take with them the rest of their lives if I was lucky, and we'd stay in touch the rest of our lives if I was lucky. So that's what I wanted. One of the things that fascinates me about this story is it's kind of an ultimate small-town situation. Everybody on the team and and in the stands knows everybody to the point where the athletic director had been your eighth grade algebra teacher. And by the way, preferred someone else for this job that you got. How do you start to think about changing a culture where people are up each other's noses all the time? Um, How do you get started on that? I got advice from my mentor, Al Clark at Culver Academies, the nation's winningest high school hockey coach. I coached with him my first job out of Michigan uh, when I was a 22 year old. And his advice was the opposite of everyone else's. And he said, the first thing you have to do is make it special to play for Huron. 
And I wisecracked, well, we're already the worst team in America. That's pretty special. And he said, no. Uh, The way to make it special is to make it hard. And once you've done that, the players know that just to make the team, they've done something that very few others would be willing to do. And that makes it their culture. And then with a little guidance, they will reinforce their own culture. And it sounds crazy, but you think about the Navy SEALs or the Peace Corps, uh, very hard jobs that pay almost nothing. You don't get famous in those jobs, obviously. And they only take about 5-10% of those who apply in both cases. And the reason is they sell the hard. They don't sell the easy. They, the hard is the appeal of the job. And that's what I was selling. And what's incredible is for a team that was 0, 22, and 3, these are not self-selecting Navy SEAL candidates we're talking about. We had four months of off-season conditioning quite hard in the gym and the track. And I did it all with them, along with assistant coach Mike Lapridge. Not one player quit. And of those guys yeah. that had not won a game, I didn't cut any of them going forward. So the, the, the success we had was the same guys who had not won a game the year before. Yeah. That, the first, there are some difficult things to read in this book. That first workout was pretty touch and go. And early on, you had a, a bleak meeting with the team's incoming captain, Mike Henry. Can you explain what that conversation was like? Sure. And Mike and I are very good friends to this day. He now runs the CompuWare Arena in Plymouth. Um, his two kids are older than mine, so he gives me parenting advice and I take it. But, uh, but basically is this. Mike did not realize the power that he had, how charismatic he was, how popular he was. He was uh, one of the best players in the team, certainly. Um, and I pulled him in. I said, look, you know, I get that it's hard to care when you're 0, 22, and 3. I get when it seems like it's corny to count while we're stretching and do all this leadership stuff and so on. But they're following you, not me. And for that reason, I need you going in the right direction. And if you do, they will. I think you don't realize the power you have. And the way Mike perceived it was less of a, uh, you know, a trip to the, behind the woodshed, if you will, than it was a, a wake-up call that you had this power. And once we had that talk, Mike was on fire. And within a month, we were a different team by the end of the summer. Mike was the most important player on that team, no question. You have coached uh, a lot of different young people, boys and girls, uh, in, in different different leagues, different uh, school teams. Can you explain the difference you see between changing people's behavior and, and actually changing the results that you get? Your, your, April Bear not only reads the books, he reads them very carefully and is ready for the exam. <laughs> so yes, exactly right. One of the chapters is called Be Patient with Performance But Not Behavior. Behavior, we have to get right on day one. we got to show up on time, be ready to work and all that stuff. But in our fifth game, we'd won three games right away to start the season. That was the, the same number we won the previous two years combined, so that was a nice start. Uh, and then we play Almighty Trenton. They've won 14 state titles at the high school level. USA Today called them once the best team in America. Um, so we're playing those guys, and the final score is 13-2. to two. And I'll remind your listeners, April, that this is not football. This is ice hockey. And those numbers come in ones. So that was a very slow evening. Uh, We all knew their fight song by the end of the night. Um, And after the game, you know, the guys are throwing their sticks and throwing their gloves. And they're pretty upset and think we're no better than last year. And they never never lost that badly the year before, even. Uh, And I said, hey, you know, what are the first two rules of here in hockey? And they mumble, work hard. I said, what is it? Work hard. We start yelling that back and forth. Did you work hard? Yeah, we did the whole night. Yes, you did. Second rule, support your teammates. Did you do it? Yeah, we did the entire night. I said, that's right. It will never be harder to follow our two principles than it was tonight, and you did it. This was heroic. Walk out with your heads held high. We're going to get better. The scoreboard's my problem, not your problem. 
And don't worry, we're playing those guys again, and it ain't going to be 13-2. to two. So the whole emphasis is on behaviors, not on performance. Don't worry about performance. It'll come if the behaviors are in the right direction. And furthermore, even when you lose a close game, a heartbreaker, if you're a win-at-all-cost program and you lose, you have nothing. So if you're based on principles other than winning, and no matter what happens, if we followed our principles, we're okay. And that is a great, secure feeling. There's another uh, game early in that first season that I have to ask you about. You were up against Chelsea, and this was a game that you you really, really wanted to win. And it was also one of the few early games that you did not attend. You you couldn't be there that night. Can you explain what happened? Yeah, it's a fall league game, so it's unofficial. So the official winner coaches cannot be behind the bench anyway, So, but I could be in the stands watching. But I was flying to Providence, Rhode Island to do to start a book on Title IX, actually, uh, which I clearly did not finish. Um, so we've got my great assistant coach, Billy Tucker, and Ned Glisson in charge, and they did a great job. But we're dying to beat this team, Chelsea. We couldn't get the upper hand. Uh, Jeff Daniels' son, Ben, was a star defenseman on that team, good guy. And a bench-clearing brawl breaks out. Seven guys on seven guys. They're all kicked out. The game is canceled, 2-2 tie, I think, at that point. So when I land in Providence, I pick up the payphone, which dates me right there, April. And I've got 12 messages after only two hours in the air. So what is this? And I start hearing all this, and I'm, my blood is boiling because I don't want to be one of these goon teams that, you know, all this craziness. Um, but this is where Mike Henry, the captain, was so great. The players were worried that I'd start kicking guys off the team. And Mike said, relax, guys. Coach and I are tight. Once he knows what really happened, we're going to be okay. And Chelsea, to his credit, by the way, the player involved, I talked to him for this book, and he admitted that he started the fight. And then the players took each other's sides and so on. I'm not at all happy about what happened. But if one of my rules is to support your teammates, well, if three guys are on your captain, you got to do something. And they did. So I told them this can never happen again. Trust me. Um, but I understand where it came from, and we're okay. You are <laughs> suspended for this game. Don't kid yourselves. Uh, but I'm not going to give up on you guys. And some parents actually believed that's when we actually became a team. I can't tell you how much I am not advocating a bench-clearing brawl as a team, as a team unifying exercise. Uh, but it worked for us in this case, I have to admit. John, it's not a hockey book if you don't have a fight scene in there. So thank you for that. <laughs> Sad but true, yes. You are the first to admit that you made some mistakes the first couple of seasons. What did you learn? Learned a lot of things. One, I learned slowly to trust them more and more and more. That it, it's, it can't be me versus the team. I learned to trust my assistant coaches more. I became more patient with them. Uh, I'm sure I was lovely to work with the first year. I, you know, all kinds of quick reactions and all this. So I learned to slow down. I learned to trust them. Um, I also learned that they're smarter than you think, and they will come up with solutions that I would not have come up with. And they did that frequently. So we often took their ideas and incorporated those um, into the team. So there's also a lesson there in hiring. Make sure you're the dumbest guy in the room. And April, I can only tell you that I greatly exceeded my expectations on that score. I was by far the dumbest guy in the coach's room. We had guys who played in Sweden, played for Michigan, all this great stuff. Um, and they were wonderful. And they were loyal. Uh, they were respectful. But in the locker room, I want your answers. I don't want questions. Tell me the truth. Um, yeah. nothing, I, nothing I learned is if you're winning, never take any credit. Don't worry about it. Got to give credit to the guys who are doing it, the guys wearing skates. If you take credit, they'll quit working for you. 
And if you never take credit, they'll keep on working and you'll get more credit than you deserve anyway. In year three, the Riverettes went 17, four and five. And there, there must have been at least a few kids around who'd been at the games before the turnaround happened. I'm thinking about Bobby Chappius. What was it like watching them experience that season? Look, man, I would never trade 10 goals for me, 20 goals for me, and seeing one of our guys score his first goal, see one of our guys, our guys beat Pioneer for the first time, to beat Trenton for the first time in our fourth year. Uh, that feeling of confidence, that's what I wanted them to feel. I wanted them to be as confident as I wasn't as a high school hockey player, and they really were. And Bobby Chapius, the grandson of the great Bob Chapius, he had a great line. Uh, he said, we went from winning zero games as a freshman his freshman year to thinking that the other team should be scared of us. And to see that out of Bobby, who's not a cocky guy, uh, made me feel really good. John U. Bacon, his latest book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, hits shelves at your favorite bookstore on September 7th. John, thank you. April, thank you. Not sure if you were able to sit with us yesterday at this time, but if you didn't, you missed the Michigan music special, Songs from the Trail. You can still check it out. It's streaming at michiganradio.org. Our guest hosts, Jackson Smith and Steve Gerbach, introduced us to a few new artists from around the state, and they shared what they've been listening to lately, including blues artist Bruce Matten. And Great Lakes Myth Society, whose musical catalog honors what makes this state interesting and wonderful. Car parts and cream corn, Indian copper and raincoats, Calumet basements had old ghosts. The show also included a conversation with Detroit music producer and musician Luis Resto. So we'd go uh, back to Puerto Rico every summer and visit our relatives. And Beba, my grandma, would play um, danzas at the piano. And uh, it, she played this song, Miguelito, accompanying my uh, grandfather. And the danza goes something like this. left hand of hers was just, you know, um, relentless, you know. And uh, it's, it's stuck with me for, for my life, you know. Check out the show. We were so happy to bring it to you. It was recorded on Beaver Island in the middle of Lake Michigan, and you can find it at michiganradio.org. The city of East Point has experienced some really interesting demographic shifts in the past couple of decades. That conversation's coming up after the break. Stay with us. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Have you seen the census numbers from 2020? Needless to say, a lot has happened over the past 10 years, even before the pandemic. And the city of East Point has a lot to show for it. According to the recent census results, the black populace in East Point increased by nearly 89 percent 
This is the first time in East Point's history that black residents are in the majority. Coming up, we're going to talk to one of the black residents who moved to the city in the past 10 years. She recently co-founded an organization to spotlight some of the diversity that's in the city right now. First, we're going to take a minute to check in with Cardi DeMonico Jr. He's a city planner and East Point City Councilman, and he's here to shed some light on what's happening from that planning perspective. Cardi, thanks for joining us. No problem. So for those who've never been here before, how do you describe East Point? Well, East Point, I think, is a great community. I've lived here since I've been eight years old. My parents moved here just from a nearby town, Clinton Township, and I've lived here ever since. Graduated from, you know, East Detroit High School, which is now East Point High School. And it's a great community because I there's freeways everywhere to get anywhere you need to go. Downtown Detroit, out of the state, north, you can get somewhere real quick. Uh, there's a lot of great restaurants and it's just a nice place to live. Yeah. What was East Point's population like over the late 20th century? Have, have there been a lot of changes in the fabric of the city over the decades? Uh, sure, for, for sure. I always say, you know, most of uh, like a large population, you know, a large amount of the population's either black or white in East Point. And over the last 20 years, the black population has grown quite a bit. In 2000, we just had about 1,600 Black folks, and now it's tenfold. And if I'm doing my math roughly correct here, it's probably 16, 17,000 Black folks now in the city. You know, East Point, according to the 2020 census, is 53% Black. Yeah. If we just look at population in terms of numbers, I know that you're, you have experience in, in urban planning. How would you describe the, the sort of lifestyle that city planners had in mind for the East Point that we see today? Well, we've recently worked on our master plan for the city, um, and we just voted on a new one in 2019. Um, I think the plan really was to kind of um, create a more community-centric area on Nine Mile. You know, we've got a lot of, as I was saying, a lot of freeways and a lot of fast roads, you know, around town, and we don't really have like a downtown area. We have a downtown development authority, which is Nine and Gratiot, but it's not a very you know, community centric area, at least at the, at this time. And so we were trying to see what we could do with that. And Nine Mile was a big focus. So I've been trying to push for Nine Mile to be slowed down a little more green space, something where more small businesses could open, as opposed to a large, you know, five lane highway. And frankly, it's just a lot of a lot of concrete out there. Right? Yeah. Uh, same thing with our Kelly Road. There's another another road around, we'd pitch something called a social district, which is new in Michigan. I'm sure you've probably done interviews on that already or someone well, at Michigan actually, Radio has. Yeah, I mean, places from Port Huron to Grand Rapids and, and most in between have been talking about this. This is sort of the the COVID discussion of how we can mm-hmm. make our cities more liver, livable for people who aren't necessarily going other places to work and to recreate and to spend time with friends and family. How does that work in your mind in East Point? How could that work? Yeah, there's, um, so we were looking at either Nine Mile or Kelly, myself and our mayor pro tem, Sarah Lucido, and we decided Kelly was probably our best bet, but we were looking at it from more of a proactive lens because we don't have the liquor licenses and bars and restaurants uh, that would sustain a social district. So I think maybe we'll go down the path of just making it a more uh, community friendly area. Cause right now it's just a grass median 
and a bunch of businesses, but nowhere to like sit down and hang out with your neighbors. So I think we'll, you know, in addition to the nine mile changes I was talking about, do kind of the same thing on Kelly. Yeah. Cardi, listening to you talk about uh, all these all these things that have been in discussion about the social district and just the fabric of what the spine of the city has to offer and thinking about the demographic changes, East Point has really uh, has really been through a lot of shift over the past couple of decades or so. Mm-hmm. Does that does that kind of change that kind of relatively rapid change? Does that mean anything from a planning perspective? Is there is there anything that tells you about things the city needs to keep in mind as it moves into its next decade? I think like in general, the things we talked about when we were doing the master plan and just the planning on Nine Mile, I think just in general, um, in terms of if the city was mostly white or mostly black, it seems like a, a lot of those things I think would apply in either case. I think everybody wants somewhere to, you know, hang out and be able to stay in their community. Cause as I've said right now, if, you know, uh, young people or families want to go and meet somewhere and maybe go to a couple different places, more than just like a restaurant and then leave, you're leaving East point. You're not spending your money in East point because there's nowhere in the city to park and then just like go to a bunch of different places. And so I'm just hoping to do that sort of thing, you know, I always for sure keep in mind if there's anything that we should consider, you know, according to the, you know, ethnic makeup of the city. Um, And like things we've been doing is uh, we've in just the last few years in February been uh, celebrating Black History Month. And then in June celebrating Pride Month, we've passed resolutions in the city. And I think, uh, at least for Pride Month, um, I believe we were the first community in the whole county to do so. So just, I think a lot of small things like that over time, just make it a community people feel comfortable in and uh, feel accepted and welcome. And I hope that we just continue to do things like that and just make it a nice city for whoever is living here. Right. There was a point in time in which East Point was called East Detroit, and that did change in the 1990s. I think a lot of people assumed that residents didn't want to be associated with Detroiters, maybe maybe black Detroiters is the implication there. Do you think that there's a there's a community consciousness of that time and maybe some of the things that have changed? I mean, obviously there were some people at that time that did want to change the name for the wrong reasons, but it did take, you know, three times on the ballot, so a lot of people did not want to change the name and didn't agree with, you know, with this gentleman's leading the the committee from what I understand to change the name. To me, I I really don't see any of that in the city at this point in time. You know, I've been on the city council for seven years now. And of course, you know, there's racism everywhere, but I feel like there's no, no large feeling anything like that in East Point. Um, I think it's, it's been very welcoming and, just a great community to be a part of. And, you know, unfortunately that is, that's part of our past and, you know, we can only improve from there. Yeah. Oftentimes people and families who are moving are looking for a more, more amenable living situation. I'm thinking about things that are uh, kitchen table issues like housing prices and how, how the schools are. Can you tell us a little bit about East Point and what's been going on in recent years? Sure. That's uh, for sure one of my favorite things, you know, about East Point. Um, as I said, I've, 
you know, lived here since I was eight years old and I bought my house just 10 years ago for $45,000 and it was flipped, you know? So like, I'm thinking I'm just out of college and I can get a house for $45,000, 1200 square feet in great condition. I, I think that's one of the things that for sure brings people to East Point you, you know, hopefully have some more disposable income then with a, you know, lower mortgage, but, you know, a house in a nearby community, you know, you go to St. Clair Shores or something and you're going to pay double for the same exact house. And it's just a couple miles away. I mean, I for sure couldn't get my house at 45,000 at this point, you know, it was just after the, the financial crisis, of course, when I bought mine and it's probably a hundred and something thousand, I'm sure by now, but still in terms of compared to, you know, other areas in Metro Detroit, I think, I think uh, East Point's a great place to, to be. Uh, we've been on the list of like most affordable places to live. You know, they look at median income, you know, how much your property taxes are per year, mortgage insurance or home insurance. And, um, you know, we've been in like the top 10 for quite a few years now. We were number two or three, I think it was just a couple years ago. And I think number eight on this last list I saw. So like I was saying, you'd have more, you know, disposable income relatively you know, than other communities around us. Councilman Cardi DeMonico Jr. of the City of East Point. Councilman, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thanks, April. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. So does a community like East Point undergoing big demographic change, does it necessarily have a lot of tension? Yes and no. Mary Hall Rayford has lived there since 2012. She's a member of the city school board. She's also co-chair of a group called East Point Advocates Supporting Equality, or EASE. Mary, welcome to Stateside. Well, thank you for inviting me. How'd you come to East Point? Well, I retired (laughs) from teaching and my husband and I decided it was time to make a move. Yeah. What was the what was the appeal of the place as you were as you were looking around and considering your options? Well, part of it was uh, I was guardian for my grandson who was a student at Harper Woods, and we looked for homes in Harper Woods, and we looked in East Point, um, found one in a perfect neighborhood as far as I'm concerned in East Point, and that's the where why we decided to move. This the appeal here is small town flavor. You know, where everybody yeah. knows one another right? Uh, to some degree. And um, I, I just love the city. I, I love the people in it. I love my block. I mean, compared to coming to Detroit, where you hear gunshots and sirens all night. And that was one of the things that struck me about the first night here. Absolute quiet. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like we were living in a different planet. Very um, quiet. <laughs> So, I mean, the difference in the environment, I I can't really say enough about it. Um, And most of the people that I've either worked with or just met, you know, absolutely love them. Have you seen the city change much since 2012? Yes, I have. And not all of it is positive. Um, We've had a change in city government and the... um, way we do things, you know, we've had a lot of rhetoric about East Point being racist, and I've not found that to be the case, but I do find that a lot of residents are really annoyed by that label. Mm-hmm. 
is is that something that you feel has come up more often since the demographics of the city started changing and more black families started moving in? Oh, it's gotten really ridiculous in the last few months. <laughs> uh huh. I mean, to the point where we're hearing a lot of rhetoric about East Point being a black community. We're taking over. I, I don't understand the rhetoric, but these are the things I hear, the things that are put on Facebook. So it makes for a difficult situation. and People can sometimes be a little unnerved by it. Yeah. So I'm hearing you say that this this that you you did feel welcome in the community from the beginning when you moved there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I love to walk. I'm a writer, and sometimes when I get writer's block, I just like to get out and walk, and I was able to do that without a concern. People spoke. I mean, walking the city blocks, I've never felt uh, disrespected uh, by anyone, and so I, I had a hard time dealing with that particular rhetoric that really started in 2019, so I, I was disturbed by it. Mm. What, what do you think might be the source of some of that? Is there anything that you would guess about folks who might be coming from other cities that, that have a different political composition? Well, part of it's generated by the mayor of East Point. She seems to think that um, because people don't like her, that they're racist. And she has said that publicly on more than one occasion, especially on several television interviews. and. You know, I guess, and I am speculating here, that the people here who don't know or haven't gotten out to get involved with the community are buying into her rhetoric. For those who don't know, we should say that Mayor Monique Owens, she's a black woman. And she's yes. the first she's the first black woman to hold that office in East Point. Um, Mary, you mentioned that you yourself have not had bad experiences as, as a black woman moving to East Point. I do know that you you co-founded this group called Ease to to try to talk about the the diversity that the community does have. Um, can you say more about the group and why you decided to why you decided to work on it? Well, sure. One of the things that happened behind some of the rhetoric that we were hearing in early 2020 was the fact that um, there were some other people. Um, white and black that were concerned about what was being said about the city. We wanted to change that perspective to the public. So we talked about it. Four of us uh, specifically came together and decided we, we needed to do something to make people see us differently. And we came up with a, a rendering of a drawing um, done by Shelley Chapa. And we sent that to a metal artist in West Virginia. His name is Michael Sizemore. And that's, this is how we decided we wanted to do a unity monument so that there would be a lasting monument that would be reflective of the diversity in East Point. And we hope that it would help bring people together. Once it's installed at John F. Kennedy Park, we hope to bring people in and, and embrace everybody. That's what we really want people to see. We embrace everyone. You, you mentioned the timing over which you started to hear comments about race in East Point. And, you know, some of the some of the newcomers who are black expressing concerns about racism. 
It occurs to me that there has been a lot going on over this period in the past couple of years. <laughs> Do you think that some people are bringing frustrations and experiences that they've that they've had in other places when they come to East Point? It's possible. And and we have to admit that at one point in time East Point had a history of being somewhat racist. But that, I believe, has changed. There are people who've been here for, you know, about 20 years or more. Um, And yet there are some people who don't like people who don't look like them or think like them. But that is not really reflective of the entire community as a whole. So this unity monument that Ease has been working on, where would it live? Does Does it have a site yet? Yes, we do. A segment of John F. Kennedy Park, right off of the Schroeder entrance. It will stand about five feet tall and um, will be a beacon of light and hope and unification as far as we're concerned. Um, This is something that the entire group totally believes in. We've um, invested Uh, in it on our own, as well as trying to raise money for it. So we had thought to be able to have it done by Thanksgiving. And uh, money is coming in rather slowly. So we've given up on Thanksgiving. And we're just going to keep going until we actually get what we need to get it installed. Mary Hall Rayford, an East Point school board member and retired educator and the co-chair of East Point Advocates Supporting Equality. Mary, it's great talking to you. Thank you for sharing a little bit about your community. Well, thank you for having me. And that's our show for today. Stateside is produced by Aaron Allen, Mike Blank, April Van Buren, and by our director, Mercedes Mejia. We get additional help from Elizabeth Harlow and Lucas Pollock. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Stateside's a production of Michigan Radio, a broadcast service of the University of Michigan. I'm April Bear. Thank you so much for listening. See you Wednesday.